we don't know whether the decline of unions is going to continue or whether we're going to see uh, some upturn in, in the next decade. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Robert McCursey, who is Professor of Management Emeritus at MIT Sloan School of Management. He is renowned for his work in industrial relations. He could well be described as the Dean of Industrial Relations, and in fact, he was Dean of the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University before moving to MIT. Bob, welcome to The Work Goes On. Well, it's good to be here, Orly. It's our pleasure indeed. Let, let's begin uh, the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up, Bob? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, actually, the same state where you are right now, Orly, outside of uh, Patterson. And I guess one of the reasons I got into this field is my father had been in that important strike that the IWW led in the uh, textile industry of Patterson back around 1914. Anyway, uh, that's where I grew up, Patterson, New Jersey, and from there I went. Well, wait now, just a minute. Wait, I got to hear about that. I.W. He was member of the International Workers of the World. That's right, and it was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Big Bill Hayward came came to Patterson and tried to organize, you know, on a wide basis, industry wide basis, uh, in 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 Patterson, uh, and my father was working in the industry. And uh, he recalled uh, how how they talked about it. They would come to the door of the factory and say, okay, workers all out, all out to the streets. So they had a massive uh, mobilization there in a little town that I grew up in, had a socialist mayor who was willing to let the uh, strike leaders hold their rallies. So my father just walked down the street from his home. Um, <laughs> and that, that building today is labeled the New Jersey Labor Museum. So that's a piece of history, Orly. Boy, that is, were they called the Wobblies then? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, you know, you are you are uh, definitely a piece of history yourself. To have a father who was a member of the IWW is very impressive. So where, did you go to school in Patterson? Where'd you go to school? I went to school after uh, high school in Patterson. I went to uh, Philadelphia to the University of Pennsylvania. And how did you come to go there? Well. Uh, in those days, uh, in the late uh, 40s, right after uh, World War II, uh, there was a naval scholarship program called the Halloway Plan after Admiral Halloway, where they would give you a, a really big scholarship, pay all your tuition. You had to go on cruises during the summer. And uh, Penn had a program, had a naval uh, ROTC. And uh, I said, hey, and my parents thought that was good, too. Uh, to have a full scholarship. So I applied to the engineering school at Penn, electrical engineering, and that's where I went. That's interesting. Uh, and then you ended up 
uh, well, I guess, where did you go from there? Well, I had to go into the Navy, although I shouldn't say had to because I really loved the three years. It was during the Korean War. And uh, we went all over the world. So uh, I joined a ship in the Philadelphia shipyard. It was coming out of mothballs because of the mobilization of the Korean War. And it stayed on it from uh, 1951 to 1954. And then what happened? Well, I decided uh, with an engineering background, it would be good to uh, put some business training on it because I thought I would probably go into industry. So I applied to Harvard Business School and went there for the MBA. And I guess just to kind of complete my uh, education uh, part of the story, I got very interested in the subject of industrial relations. Uh, They had a strong faculty in industrial relations at the time. Uh, Ben Seligman uh, was very interested in negotiations and power relations, and they had several other people in the faculty, like Bob Livernash. So they got me interested in writing cases. So I didn't just do my two years for the MBA, but I stayed on, wrote cases, and then they said, well, look, maybe just a little bit more coursework and a dissertation, you can get your doctorate here. And I said, well, okay, I still want to go to industry. Uh, So I did my uh, doctoral studies there. And then Livernash said, well, he said, you know, you ought to try your hand at teaching. And I've got a good friend at University of Chicago. My name was George Schultz. George and uh, Bob had worked together uh, when George was at MIT and Bob was across the river at, at Harvard. So I started my career in 1959 as an assistant professor in the business school at University of Chicago. When George Schultz was there. Yeah, George Schultz was there, and he was building up an industrial relations group. He had Arnie Weber, uh, who also had gotten his uh, PhD from MIT. He brought Joel Seidman in from the sociology department, and they connected very strongly with people you know, Al Reese, uh, Greg Lewis. It was really an amazing time for the whole big subject of labor economics and industrial relations. They had a weekly seminar that everybody went to uh, where they brought in guests. It was really an intoxicating time. Uh, That was pretty much from 1959 uh, through the end of the 60s. Yes, and then George ended up as Secretary of Labor in the, uh, I guess, the Nixon administration, the first Nixon administration. But, you know, so that was a very powerful moment at the University of Chicago in industrial relations and labor economics, then the list of names you just reeled off was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a heady time uh, to, to, to be there at the university. So what, where did you go next? Well, after 12 years uh, at your Chicago, uh, I said, maybe I'm ready for a change. And here was the school, you know, the the place that had the most resources devoted to industrial relations was the New York State School of Industrial Labor Relations, which was part both of Cornell and the state system. So it got some significant resources from the state, uh, you know, with a commitment to uh, train people, run extension programs. And I said, gee, this is a really, you know, my field is industrial relations. Uh, what would be a better place uh, than the ILR school at, at Cornell? It also was a good time to go there because it had been founded in the late 40s. And now we're talking about 1971. So the founding faculty, they were all about ready to retire. So the provost said, look, if you come here, you've got an opportunity to kind of uh, be 
the second wave, the second generation of faculty. And I said, well, that's, you know, I, I like that. I don't necessarily like administration, but, you know, hey, I like the subject. And if we can, you know, bring some talent uh, for the second generation, uh, that's something I want to work on. And you really did, too. I think we should start by discussing your very famous book. The, the first time I knew about your scholarship, <clears throat> you wrote a book about the time that I graduated from college, I think, a behavioral theory of labor negotiations. How did that come about? It's a very famous book. You know, it, it, it is, I think, the thing uh, that I'm uh, most uh, uh, proud of. Uh, Dick Walton and I went through the doctoral program together at Harvard Business School. And as I mentioned a minute ago, Ben Seligman, he really was fascinated by negotiations. In fact, he was an arbitrator. And from that vantage point, he would often talk with the companies and unions and say, look, if you've had a negotiation recently and you've been willing to have it recorded, I'd like to have that in my classes. I'd like to really analyze it. You know, just look at the play-by-play interaction of, of a negotiation. So, he had this advanced course in negotiations, labor negotiations to be specific, and he had these transcripts, and we would pour over them. Anyway, Dick and I took the course, got very interested in the subject, and said, look, we think there's a lot here that can be put together. Uh, there's a lot written about the process, but it doesn't sort of pull together all the pieces. So... Dick went to Purdue University for his first teaching after Harvard. And I, as I just said, went to Chicago and they're not too far apart, maybe a hundred miles. So Dick and I continued to work and the book was published all around 1963, 64. It took us about five years. And um, we had a lot of case material from Seligman. We did our own field research and uh, Dick also spent a year at the social relations department at Michigan, which uh, gave him some some tools. There was a real group there very interested in conflict management. Uh, and I benefited my, from my colleagues uh, at Chicago. So uh, it, was a, it was a joint partnership between Dick and myself. And we were just, just really happy uh, the way it turned out. Well, I hadn't quite understood that you had all of this additional material as background to use. Uh, why don't you describe, uh, there, there are a lot of times people talk about this book and the four kinds of negotiations that you discuss. Economists are familiar with some of them, and we all stumble into all of them at some point. Do you want to mention what they are? Well, there's the classic one that I think everybody associates uh, with, with bargaining, uh, kind of win-lose, you know, uh, and you press for the, the, the best outcome. That's what we call distributive bargaining. You, you have some resources and how they get divided up between the two sides is, uh, is, a, is a form of distribution. Uh, another process, uh, qu- quite different, uh, some people have different labels for it. We call it integrative bargaining. Uh, some people would call it mutual gains uh, where you look for uh, adding to the pie, not just the first process of distributive bargaining would be sort of slicing up the pie. Uh, the second process of integrated bargaining would be the expanding of the pie through, bro- through problem solving and what we sometimes call these days interest-based bargaining, understanding each side's interests. And if you do that, sometimes you can come up with uh, some ideas that uh, no one thought of before. 
But in the process, there's also the relationship or the or the attitudes. Uh, and, and they can be, in a sense, pretty tense, particularly in distributive bargaining. But with respect to integrated bargaining, they need to be much more problem solving and collaborative. So that's a third process. We had the unfortunate title of calling it attitudinal structuring, but I think it really is talking about the relationship between the two parties. And then the fourth process we added at the end, uh, we were focused for most of our work on the behavior at the table, but we all know that things don't get settled until the people who have, in a sense, most at stake in, in union man's relations, it would be the membership, on the employer side, it would be uh, the the management and ultimately the stockholders. So we got very interested in what you'd call kind of the second table. Uh, the union leaders have to go back and sell it to the membership. The uh, chief guy from the company has got to go and make sure uh, management's okay with it. So we, again, had an awkward title. It was called Intra-Organizational um, Bargaining. But today, there's a lot of work on agency theory because the lead negotiators are agents and they have to, in a sense, negotiate back with their constituents and principles. So those are the four. I think that the the intra-organizational issue is one that is, I think people in industrial relations are more familiar with that than people in labor economics are. And I think actually it's extremely important for many negotiations. In fact, I, I can't help but ask, because you've really led into it from the theory, about the recent almost strike uh, of the railway workers. Uh, the Railway Labor Act, of course, is not quite, I think it might be almost as old as you. Oh, it's older. <laughs> it's pretty old. Uh, and of course, it, it has been rolled out every once in a while. A lot of people don't understand that uh, railway workers operate under a separate uh, national labor relations law than the rest of most workers do. But what's your, can you give us a little rundown on what your take is on what happened in that this, that negotiation and why uh, it it collapsed in some sense and uh, Congress had to force a, a resolution? Well, I'm glad you asked about it because it's, I think it's terrific uh, for scholars to have these kind of events uh, uh, take place. I mean, I think some people might say, oh, it was unfortunate that it, it you know, had to happen the way it did. But I think for, for scholars, they say, oh boy, what a, uh, what, what a juicy uh, subject uh, with all the things that you can, can, can take away. I guess there are a couple of things to be said about it, uh, Orly. Uh, clearly, the union leadership uh, did not know the, 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 the temper of the membership, particularly around the issue of getting uh, time off uh, for sick, pay time for, uh, for, for medical events. And they signed on to the agreement. Uh, maybe they knew uh, there would be some trouble. I mean, sometimes you have union leaders uh, who know the membership's going to reject it. And then they say, well, then that'll give us the second bite of the apple. We'll go back with uh, another set of demands, uh, whether that was the case or whether they just weren't in tune with the membership, uh, we don't know. But it was unfortunate that it, it went to the membership. And we had then four major unions uh, who did not get a majority of, of support uh, for it. Uh, and then, of course, uh, where are we? I mean, uh, uh, it's gone through the emergency board. The secretary of labor was heavily involved 
in what was then the uh, proposed uh, settlement. So, you know, wh- wh- where do we go? I don't know. Uh, it could have gone back for some more negotiations, but uh, they were on a timetable. They'd been working at it for a couple of years already. So uh, they decided that they needed to bring uh, Congress in. And it's a very rare thing for, for, for Congress to come in. Frankly, I'm very happy that Congress did not try to change the terms that the union leaders and uh, management had agreed to. I mean, that'd be the last thing you would want. You'd have unions uh, lining up for Congress if they're uh, aware that Congress uh, in a sense make the deal uh, deal better for them. The other part of the story, uh, Orly, is why did the companies resist so much uh, paid uh, for a medical time off? And I don't, I haven't talked to any managers, but I've got some uh, hunches there. And I think it is because the railroad has downsized to the point where if a person takes off at the last minute, maybe the the, the train doesn't doesn't run. Uh, so when we take vacation time or we take personal time, that's planned. And you can, in a sense, fill the crew in with somebody else. But if I wake up in the morning and I say, hey, I don't want to go to work today, because I've got a paid medical day. Oh, why? Well, okay, I won't go to work, but that may stop the train. Uh, So we're in a situation, I think, where the railroads have, uh, they've benefited from the productivity of their their members, uh, but I don't think they've, in a sense, handled staffing correctly to put themselves in a position where they have to do something that I don't think is sensible. you know, preventing people from being paid uh, for legitimate medical events. Very, that's very, uh, uh, very interesting. I, I had a similar view in a way, basically that it was about uh, providing employees. In other words, what we used to call manning uh, the the trains and how difficult that could become when they can't uh, stick to schedules. But it also would mean that in order to actually uh, work with a situation where they had paid leave, they probably would have to hire more people. And that would reverse their, as you pointed out, uh, attempt to slim down uh, the number of workers in the, in the, uh, in the railroad. So that's a quite interesting, but anyway, it's, that's, it is a great story, isn't it? Uh, and I suppose that we'll come back to it at another time. Now you've been involved. I know in lots of negotiations. In fact, you're still on, I think the, the Harvard Project on Negotiations, and I imagine you've been involved in arbitration and other matters as well in the labor management area. Have What's your opinion about how useful that is? No, I think uh, arbitration, uh, mediation, uh, someone who you know very well, Larry Katz at, uh, at Harvard, he and I have... Uh, over the years, uh, done quite a bit of mediation uh, with, uh, you know, Harvard has uh, quite a few unions. Uh, they had a strike uh, oh, two or three years ago of their uh, workers, uh, the workers, the culinary workers. And we, Larry and I were up at 2 a.m. one morning uh, on that on that one. Uh, the issue there was these workers uh, did fine during the nine months of the academic year but they didn't get much pay or didn't have any work to do uh, if they were, you know, working in all of the cafeterias and things during the summer. 
Uh, so we worked out a plan where if they were unemployed, uh, that unemployed would be uh, topped up uh, through, a, through a special program. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, third-party help uh, is essential uh, in our field of labor management relations. I can understand that too. If 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 you're if the president was Larry Summers at the time, <laughs> he might be difficult to deal with. I don't know. I'm sorry, I couldn't help. I couldn't resist. I think we should turn to another area that you've worked in. I know there's a book that you've written about. I guess when you were in Chicago, the work that you did in the civil rights area, and I don't think very many people know as much about that as they do about your work in what we normally call industrial relations. What, what was that book about? Oh, that book was really about the amazing uh, decade of the 60s in, in Chicago, and which is right there in my front yard, the civil rights movement. Uh, it was active all over the country, of course. But Chicago uh, had a kind of uh, special role. In fact, uh, Martin Luther King uh, chose it as his first northern city after he had done most of his work in, in the South. And he came to Chicago around 1966 on the theme of open housing. I mean, there was just so much redlining and restriction of housing uh, for the African-Americans. And I got quite active uh, on the employment front uh, through Tim Black, who was the local chair of the national, called the NALC. Anyway, he was working on employment uh, segregation, particularly in the apprenticeship uh, trades. Uh, so I went to work with uh, with Tim Black, uh, helping him uh, with some of his campaigns. And there were lots of marches. Uh, and it was an, an amazing time. Uh, it also in the negotiation book we just talked a minute ago, we have a, a chapter in there using civil rights as an example of, of for negotiations. Uh, but I decided, oh, it was quite a few years after the 60s, uh, probably by the time I got here to MIT, that I wanted to try to pull a story together for the whole decade, uh, the campaigns on education, uh, trying to open up schools uh, that were uh, there for the whites with lots of vacancies and the black kids were all crowded in uh, to their schools. Um, and then I got working with Jesse Jackson, uh, who was expanding business opportunities for African-Americans. That was fascinating. Uh, he would use uh, patronage uh, campaigns uh, telling people don't shop at this store until they hire more um, or put more products made by African-Americans. So I tried to pull the story together uh, for the 60s in, into this book. That's fascinating. Now, you were a white guy. Did, how did that work? Did you feel welcome? It's a good question, Orly. Uh, I felt welcome uh, generally, but there were others, maybe some more militant, who felt you know everything should be uh, done uh, by black leadership. And I can remember uh, one moment in a strategy session with, with Tim Black, and he had uh, some of the more militants there, and he had he was a very shrewd uh, leader. At one point, he said to me, he said, well, Bob, he said, uh, I understand you're teaching. You must be kind of busy. Maybe you need uh, to get back and, you know, get ready for some of your classes. We, we, we would understand if you have to, you have to go now. <laughs> 
<laughs> I see. You know, this reminds me, uh, we both knew one of the most interesting people uh, who was black and in economics, Phyllis Wallace, who was at MIT while you were there too. Uh, unfortunately, she's gone and we can't have her on, on a podcast, but she involved me as a graduate student. And I guess she involved you uh, with work at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. What can you say about her? Well, I can say a lot about her. I mean, we could do a podcast on on Phyllis Wallace. As we were talking before we started the podcast, uh, you know, Phyllis got her PhD. I think she was the first a black, maybe maybe the first woman uh, to get her PhD from from Yale, and um, she had a hard time uh, getting a job in the in the mainstream of the profession, and she worked. Uh, for the government. And I think she was uh, doing some very uh, sensitive work that she would never talk about, although it was on Russia. She became an expert on on Russia. And then when the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was established around 1961, 62, in the early 60s, uh, she came over, and that's how both of us met her, uh, they didn't make her research director. Again, you know, I think it was, it's bad, bad history. She was the assistant, but she did all the work. Uh, I mean, she ran, she ran the research department. And when This will the, sound familiar to many women. And, and, and then when the, and then when the data became available under the law, that companies had to report uh, their, their data on, on race and sex on gender and so on. Uh, she had all this data to be analyzed. And I, that's when I first met you, Arlie. She she brought people, uh, Lesher Thoreau was there. Uh, she brought people into Washington. Uh, and we talked about how to do some decent research work on this data that was now becoming available. And she stayed on at the commission uh, until, oh, I was dean at, Cornell. I was trying to hire her. She was uh, stepping down from the EEOC. Might have been the mid-70s. I tried to hire her and she accepted a position at MIT. So when I got to MIT a few years later, we kind of laughed. I said, I, I had to come to MIT to be with you, Phyllis. I couldn't get you to, uh, couldn't get you to Cornell. Uh, and at, at MIT, she was, in a sense, kind of the mother. She was the confidant of of women faculty. We, unfortunately, we did not have too many African Americans, but the women faculty just, in a sense, looked up to her. And she was one of the first full professors of female full professors, and certainly by a long shot, the first African American professor. And she did so much work, you know, on on discrimination, on a woman's issues. Well, that that I, we're getting toward the end of our podcast, and there are two more things I want to ask you about. First of all, related to what you just mentioned, I know you've written recently about the Black Lives Matter and negotiations as as a, as an issue. What what do you what did you have to say, and what do you think about that? Well, I was fascinated uh, by this, you know, kind of latest movement, latest uh, direct action for, for, for change. And I was interested, you know, to compare it with what was happening uh, back in the 60s. Uh, and what's going on or was going on, I think there's been, you know, some loss of momentum. 
it was much wider scale. Uh, many more people were involved in Black Lives uh, Matter than the Civil Rights Movement. But in some ways, it maybe hasn't been been quite as um, instrumental in, in, in bringing about change. But of course, the change we're looking at today is different. In the 60s, the change was overt discrimination. And you could really target uh, people who were discriminating uh, very explicitly. Today, the issues are much more subtle. Uh, it's, it's attitudes. It's uh, what you know people are talking of, about in terms of critical race analysis. Uh, so I think the movement is tackling you know really very difficult ter- territory. Uh, but I think on, on balance, it, it, it was important to have another movement getting our attention to things that have been with us for so long and need to, need to be addressed. The, and the last thing I want to ask you about is you've also written a provocative piece called Industrialations in Flux. What, what did you mean by that? Well, uh, that was the title of what was kind of a memoir uh, about my my career at the different places we've talked about uh, today, and I think it's really reflecting where we are with unionization. I mean, currently, some people think uh, we've reached an inflection point uh, where maybe we're going to see uh, you know much more uh, new unionization and, and in a sense wider. Uh, play for collective bargaining because uh, we've had a downturn in, in unions that's been going on now for for several de- decades. Uh, so I think the flux refers to the fact that on the one hand, we have Kaiser Permanente, a wonderful partnership with a lot of uh, unions there and collective bargaining. And we have some things happening, uh, as, as, as we all know, whether it's Amazon or Starbucks or some other places. So it, the flux, I think, just refers to the fact that uh, we are, you know, in a, a period of time where we don't know whether the decline of unions is going to continue or whether we're going to see uh, some upturn in, in the next decade. Bob, it's been absolutely delightful to have you. Uh, I'm so happy we could, we could get together. Our guest today has been Robert McCursey. Professor of Management Emeritus at MIT's Sloan School of Management. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we will speak with Richard Freeman, the Herbert Asherman Professor of Economics at Harvard University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.